If you've been with us this semester or if this is your first RUF, uh, just wanted to give you a heads up with what we've been doing this semester. We've been looking at the basic uh, narrative arc of the entire Bible. And we said that the Bible is a story. And it has four basic chapters, right? If you've been around, don't repeat this with me, but it sh- I, I hope that it is tattooed into your brain by now. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And so we're going to talk about the end. What is the consummation? Again, this is our last week, so we'll ruin the ending of the, the Bible. Sarah's got a spoiler shirt of every movie you don't want spoiled that tells you the ending. So we're going to tell you the ending of the Bible. Here it is. Uh, and God is very kind to do it. This is not a mean, capricious spoiler alert, but here it is. Um, so Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then jump into verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Then over to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On No day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then on to chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. This is God's word. Let me pray for us before we jump in. Father, we are um, glad in many ways to be here at the end of this semester. I know some of us uh, come into this room exhausted. 
worn out from a semester that has just beaten them up and a semester that has riddled them with uh, guilt and exhaustion. Some of us come into this room glad that this, fin- this semester is almost over and promises uh, hope for the next one. Some of us come into this room uh, filled with uh, fear about what it's going to look like to go home, to be with family next week, uh, afraid of comments that parents will make. Some of us in this room come, uh, come into this room tonight uh, excited, glad that it has been a fruitful and encouraging semester. Some of us just come in here bored, tired of Christianity, tired of doing the same old routine, but feel like they have to. Father, we come into this room in all types of different uh, places and in different seasons in our life, and I pray through uh, this last talk as we open up uh, your scripture, Father, would you meet us where we are, and would you uh, meet us with grace? Would you meet us with kindness? Father, we ask that you would be kind to open up your word and, and show, it, show it to us, teach it to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as we look at the last part of the Bible, one um, author said this, We must remind ourselves yet once more that all Christian language about the future is a set of signposts pointing into a mist. Signposts don't normally provide you with advanced photographs of what you'll find at the end of the road, but that doesn't mean they aren't pointing in the right direction. They're signposts pointing into a cloudy mist. And so what we're trying to do tonight is clarify some of the mist as much as we can and figure out, okay, what does the end look like? So we're going to talk about that, the consummation. And I think that it's helpful to look at the consummation, this idea about the end of the storyline of the Bible under two main macro headings, renovation and resolution. So we're going to look at each of these in turn. So first, renovation. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We talked about this a little bit last week, but here we go again. The hope for the Christian storyline is a renewed, concrete, physical, tangible, remade planet earth. A restructured, purified universe where we are uh, ourselves resurrected on a new heavens and a new earth. We said last week heaven is not the final hope. Heaven is not the final goal for the Christian. That is life after death. But as one author said, the hope for the Christian is really life after life after death. The new heavens and the new earth. This world renovated, remade, purified, reconstructed without its sin, without its flaws, and filled with glory. Now, some of you are going to raise an objection and say, Matt, that's not really what the text says. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first one is going to be passed away. The first one's going to be gone and God's going to bring in just a whole new one. And that's what new means, right? And there really are two different camps. I don't know if you would particularly care about this sort of scholarly debate, but there's two different camps that say, no, the, this earth, this universe is going to be uh, burned up, fried away, it's going to go away, and God's going to just sort of create a whole new system of things at the end. And then there's one camp that says, no, it's actually going to be this world, this cosmos, this universe that's going to be restructured and remade, renewed. And I'm of the camp, and I 
going to try and show you that I think that's what the Bible says, that it's actually this world that's going to be renovated and remade. Three uh, reasons why I think that. First, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 44, it's talking about our resurrection bodies. That when we will be ushered into the new heavens, new earth, we will have resurrection bodies. It's going to be us, the same you, the same me, the same identity, but a completely restructured, glorified resurrection body. Not a completely new radical thing, the same you. First piece. Second piece, Romans 8 20 through 23 talks about how creation is, is groaning. It's longing to be liberated from its bondage of decay. It's crying out for renovation, for renewal. God doesn't look at this groaning earth and say, forget your groans, I'm going to start over. He says, no, you will be renovated. You will be liberated. What you're yearning for, you will receive. Third thing, the actual word new in Greek, is, does not mean new in origin. It means uh, new in quality, a whole new quality of something. This is, what, this is the same idea behind when Paul says, you are a new creation if you are in Christ. It's not like you no longer existed and there's this whole new you. It's, it's, you're the same you, just remade, renewed. This is why in verse 5, Paul or uh, John, who's writing this book, says, uh, or Jesus says, I am making all things new. He's not saying, I am making all new things. Saying, I am making all new, all all things new. The hope for the Christian, the storyline of the Bible ends in a renovated, fixed up universe and planet. You know, the shows, um, you know, makeover, home makeover editions, you know, where they go into an old crummy house and they, you know, knock down old walls and they, they're fixing it up and totally renovating it. God is into that stuff too. This is like home makeover planet edition. <laughs> or if you think about it in these terms, remember the, the old show, um, Pimp My Ride? <laughs> this is Pimp My Planet. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> C.S. Lewis put it this way. That the story of the Bible is about a king who has invaded enemy-occupied territory. And he is the rightful king of this land. And he has come to take it back. And this is what the, story, this is what the Christian story is. Is that the king has come back to his planet to take it back. The church in the past said this, put it this way. Grace does not destroy nature, but restores it. That's what grace is. It it, it is not uh, destroying and and wiping you away. It is actually restoring you, fixing you. And this is the same thing that's going on in the new heavens and the new earth. John Piper told us to think about it in these terms. In his book, Future Grace, he says, think about it in terms of a caterpillar and a butterfly. Uh, He says, um, the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. There is a real passing away, but yet there is a real continuity, a real connection. And if I don't have to prove it to you with all of that, you too, the band, puts it this way. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Great lyric. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. This is what God is in the business of doing. Renovation. Renovating your life, renovating your body, renovating the entire planet, the entire universe. Some of you are looking at me going, who cares? 
so what? What does this matter? Well, let me try to explain why it matters. The reason it matters is that if it is this world that is being remade, then everything that you do in the name of Jesus matters. Everything that you do carries over in the name of Jesus. It says in Revelation 14, 13, that the deeds uh, of believers follow them, meaning what you do in this life actually has implications for the next life. What you do in this world for the kingdom of God carries over to the next world. I know this sounds a little sci-fi, but here's somebody who explains it much better than me. His name's Cornelius Plantinga. Great name. He says, what we do now in the name of Christ, striving for healing, for justice, for intellectual light and darkness, striving simply to produce something helpful for sustaining the lives of other human beings, shall be preserved across into the next life. All of it counts. All of it lasts. None of it is wasted or lost. This is the view that not just individuals need fixing and renovating, but culture does as well. And who has God chosen to renovate and restore culture? You and me. He has selected people as agents for his redemption project, his restoration project that is already taking place. Okay, how do you do that? Three quick ways. One is cultural renewal. You enter into a culture And you do things, you create good art, you create good literature, you create good philosophy and and science in the name of Jesus for the kingdom. And that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be, you know, Christianized. It means producing good art, renovating and restoring culture to a quality of goodness, cultural renewal. The second thing is uh, seeking justice. When you have an eye for the new heavens and the new earth. This makes you want to, to, to fix and correct the things that are wrong in this world now. Because, I mean, look at Jesus's ministry. He does not come just to save souls. He does not come just preaching. What is he also doing? He is feeding the hungry, caring for the needs of the poor. He is healing the sick. He is bringing about justice to the world, to the world that needs it. So many of us, so many of y'all, live in a tunnel vision where the whole world is basically your class schedule or your dorm or your neighborhood or your family or your, you know, we create these little worlds that we live in. But when you start to have a vision for the new heavens and the new earth, you start to become aware of more global issues. You start to realize, hey, there are actually people on the other side of the planet who are hungry. And I should do something about that. Their needs start showing up on your radar because you want to bring in the kingdom to this world as it's going to come in the future where nobody is going to be hungry. So you start to have a bigger vision for the planet itself and other people's needs and seeking justice and caring for the poor. Third thing is that this redignifies work and vocation. Think about it like this. If salvation is only escape from this world and going to heaven, if that's the definition of salvation, then the only jobs that really matter are missionaries and pastors. 
right? They're the only ones doing anything that really counts. Everything else is going to be burned up and not matter. But what if salvation is actually the restoration of the entire cosmos, the entire planet, the entire universe? Then this gives dignity to all types of jobs. You can be an accountant and, and be bringing the kingdom into this world by being an accountant well, by not cutting corners to greedily gain profit, to stand up for what is right. You can br- be bringing the kingdom into this world wherever God is calling you, whatever vocation God is calling you into. Do you have a comprehensive view of your work like this, of what you're going to be doing when you get out of here, that what I'm going to be doing is actually going to be helping to renovate and restore this planet to what it's supposed to be? Or is work for you just something that you have to do, just some drudgery you've got to do to make money, just to get the bills paid? What does Jesus teach us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer? He says, uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The restoration project that Jesus invites us into is to be a part of bringing the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. This earth, these mountains, Boone itself, this university. If you don't have a view that is bigger than just going out and sharing the gospel with people, but actually incorporates all of life, philosophy and literature and the arts and cultural renewal and doing justice, then you're going to constantly be feeling guilty that I'm not doing what I should be doing as a Christian. But you need to have a bigger and more comprehensive view of everything that you're going to be doing as bringing in the kingdom to this world as it is in heaven, which is a lot more robust and a lot more rich. Do we need to be sharing the gospel? Yes. Does the gospel matter? Yes. Will people be a part of the new heavens and new earth without the gospel? No. But it's not just that. It's also caring for people's real tangible needs, whether or not they believe the gospel and agree with you or not. So that's the first picture, renovation. Second main heading that we have to think of in terms of the consummation is resolution. And this is kind of the spoiler alert. This is how it all ends. This is the the resolution of the crisis. And I want to pull out very quickly six things from this passage. We'll go quick. (laughs) Buckle up. The first thing, I highlighted all of these, by the way. First verse, there's no longer any sea in the new heavens and new earth. Are you thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to be chilling in the new heavens, no earth, and there's not going to be any beaches? That's going to totally stink. No water, no sea. Well, you have to remember that Revelation is symbolic. Most of what is in there is jam-packed pictures and metaphors and symbols of meaning something else. So what does sea represent? Well, think about Genesis 1. The Spirit's hovering over this chaotic, tumultuous sea, right? Noah's story, where does the fish come out of? Big, scary, dark, unpredictable sea. Uh, uh, Noah, what happens? Sea comes down. Water fills the world. Scary, not good, dangerous. Revelation 13, there's a picture of a big beast coming out of the sea. You've got to remember, these were uh, fishermen culture. This was a fishing culture. So the sea represented darkness, unpredictable chaos. So when it says that there will no longer be any sea 
in the new heavens and new earth, that means there will be no more chaos, no more uh, turmoil, no more war, no more darkness, no more unpredictable chaos. One of my favorite bands, uh, the Decemberists, um, usually don't end their songs or their albums on any note of optimism whatsoever, if you're familiar with their music. Usually the protagonist of their stories drown or get killed or something bad happens. But if, you, if you're familiar, at the end of their album, The Crane Wife, they talk about this post-apocalyptic, extremely hopeful, optimistic world. And here's the line, here's the uh, chorus from it. It says, when we arrive, sons and daughters, we'll make our home on the water, we'll build our walls aluminum, we'll fill our mouths with cinnamon. (laughs) And then they all chant at the end, here all the bombs fade away. And it's this picture of no more bombs, no more need for security systems, our walls are made out of aluminum, it's paradise, we're enjoying cinnamon, and uh, there's going to be cinnamon and sugar just pouring through the new heavens and the new earth. No, but I think that that is, a, that is a true picture. Optimistic, hopeful, true. No more chaos. Second thing, no more death. If you saw it in 21 uh, verse 4, it says, I, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more suicide. No more cancer. No more school shootings. No more, no more car accidents. I know that at some level, death has affected people in this room. And if it hasn't yet, it will. Or you will lose a friend or a relative or or someone close to you. That is the nature of our fallen world. But the new heavens and the new earth promises death itself will have died. Death death has been defeated. And how do we know that? By Jesus' resurrection itself. Remember, Jesus' resurrection is the prototype of what is to come. Death has been defeated. Life is resurrected. Third thing, no more tears or mourning or crying or pain. Again, that same verse, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And I know that this one connects with everybody in this room. The pain of loneliness The pain of coming into a room like this and feeling like nobody knows me, nobody gets me, nobody understands me. The pain of uh, your family, of, of the wounds that have been inflicted on you, sometimes horrific wounds that nobody in this room knows about and only you know about. The pain that you are carrying around as you've walked through this door. The pain of, uh, from your friends, the backstabbing and the gossip and the, and the betrayal and the you know, selling you out for this group of friends, the hope that is held out for you is that there is none of that in the new heavens and new earth. The pain, the, the strife, the uh, uh, struggles are gone. All gone. Derek Webb, who is a, a, a you know, musician, one of my uh, favorite musicians, he has a song called This Too Shall Be Made Right you're familiar with some of his music. And he lists, he paints a picture of this world, the genocide and the hunger and the oppression and the wars and everything that is wrong with this world. And after every verse, he says, this too shall be made right. Everything that is wrong in this world, everything that is twisted shall be righted. Justice will be served. The wounds that have been inflicted on you will not go unnoticed. 
They will not. Justice will be served. Everything that has been wrong will be made right. Fourth thing, no more temple. Chapter 21, verse 22, it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Throughout the whole Old Testament, what's the point of the temple? You know, they've got this big temple. They're worshiping at the temple. The temple is sort of the central nucleus of everything that the Old Testament church did. What's the point of the temple? It is God dwelling with his people. It is Emmanuel, God here with us. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you, there's this heartbeat of God will be with his people and his people will be with him. I mean, here it is in verse uh, 21, verse 3, back up here at the top. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Did you also catch all this language about us being referred to as the bride, the bride of Christ? I know this may sound weird for the guys in the room. You are the bride. We collectively, the church is the bride. And that is familial, extremely intimate love language. God has plans to be intimate and love and communion for the rest of eternity on the new heavens and the new earth with his people. This is extremely potent language. If you look back through the Old Testament, we are the bride, he is the husband that is longing, that is waiting in anticipation for us to get there with him. When I was uh, dating my now wife, Catherine, we dated long distance, eight hours apart. I was in Baton Rouge, she was in Atlanta. It was horrific. I don't recommend long distance dating, though I know some of you are. It's just not fun because you get to know this person and your desires increase for this person and you've got to drive eight hours across the country to get to them. So here we are dating and uh, you know we dated for nine months and we eventually got engaged. Um, I'll tell you that story some other time. And uh, so now we are engaged and this engagement revolutionized our relationship because now everything that we're talking about is planning the wedding and thinking through where we're going to live, what we're going to do, uh, what life is going to look like. And, you know, we're sort of dreaming about this day to come that's still way, you know, months out in front of us. But it's, you know, we're still eight hours apart and it's, it's created all of this longing and it's completely changed the way that we talk, the way that we relate to each other. And the same dynamic is happening in the Bible. You have a wedding coming up of sorts. And that shifts your heart when you begin to think about what this is going to actually look like when I get there. For one, it it makes other uh, lovers, other spiritual uh, lovers, things that would pull your heart away from your groom, less attractive. When, when, you know, when we got engaged, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I was not really interested in really getting to know any other girls other than Catherine. That same sort of heart shifts when you are setting all of your heart on your groom, on, on your, on your uh, bridegroom to come. And the other thing that happens is that, um, I mean, I, I know everybody in, at some level can resonate with this idea of, I don't really feel like anybody really knows me and really likes me. If they knew me for who I really was, they wouldn't really like me. They wouldn't really want anything to do with me. 
And this is, of course, why we hide the way that we do. This is why we put up the, the, the masks and wear the masks that we do, because we don't want anybody to really get to know the real us, because if they did, they would run probably. But the hope that is held, up, held out for you and for me is that you have somebody that knows you and not only knows you, but loves you in an un- incomprehensible way. There's this verse in Zephaniah 3.17. And I know you probably aren't reading through Zephaniah, but it is this amazing, almost impossible to believe verse where it says this, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight with you. He will quiet you with his love. And then it says this, He will rejoice over you with singing. Can you... Just picture that idea of God rejoicing over you with singing. God is singing over us. Do you believe this? And if you do, does it change the way that you relate to him? Does it change the way you relate to the world of knowing my bridegroom is out there waiting, singing in anticipation for me, for me, as messed up and as screwed up as I am? He's ready for me. No more temple. Fifth thing, no more sun, night, or darkness. Chapter 21, verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. There are other verses to look at that hit on that same idea, and it's the idea that darkness represents evil. Darkness represents sin and pollution. And God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And the new heavens and new earth will have be completely eradicated of anything polluted, anything sinful, anything wrong. Last thing, sixth thing, my favorite thing. No more curse. No more curse. Chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. Okay, what in the world does that mean? Sounds very Harry Potter-ish, doesn't it? No longer any curse. If you remember back through the storyline of the Bible, God creates the world good. He creates man in his image. The fall happens, chapter 2. Man rebels against God, and what happens? The earth is now cursed. Mankind is cursed. Read about it in Genesis chapter 3. And as a result, the thing that flows from it, the outworkings of this curse is guilt and sorrow and death and everything that is wrong with this world. So how is this curse broken? How is this curse fixed? Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The the curse, everything, uh, God's displeasure, His wrath, was... was, uh, poured out on the cross, poured out on Jesus on the cross instead of you, instead of me, instead of those who deserve it. And as a result, now the curse is broken for those that are in Jesus, for those that have bowed the knee and put their heart completely onto Jesus himself. No more curse for you. And that day will come when all of the curse will be pushed out and eradicated from this planet. This is what we just sang about. Enjoy to the world. Did you see the lyrics? Uh, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The curse is this, you know, black plague that is covering this whole planet, and he has come to push it out and to let his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And this means 
that life is different for you and me. That we live in light of the hope that is coming. We are not a part of that previous world, though so, so much of us wants to be, so much of us is pulled back into that old cursed order of things, but that has passed away if we are a part of this revolutionizing, renovating project that Jesus is doing. Let me close with this. You remember the, um, uh, the movie Pirates of the Caribbean? <laughs> of course you do, because you saw it when you were 10. Um, you remember the basic storyline. There are these zombie pirates. <laughs> Sorry, I've been talking a lot about zombies lately. There are these zombie-esque cursed pirates who, who you know, they can't experience the world. They can't, they can't taste. They can't feel things. They're, they're cursed in this sort of undead pirate-esque state for eternity unless blood is shed and the curse is broken. And so, you know, Orlando... Bloom's blood is, you know, cut and he, you know, puts the blood in the little treasure chest and the curse is broken. And what happens to these pirates? They start to get flesh and bone again. They start to return back to what they were before. They start to become renovated and restored. And that picture is the same thing that happens with you as an individual and with the world as a whole because of the blood of Jesus. The question is, though, does his blood cover you? Are you a part of what Jesus is doing or are you rebelling against Jesus? And, and if you are, this is a safe place to talk about that. What questions you have, why you would not be interested in this whole thing, but at least part of you should think, I, I want that to be true. Even though I don't believe it to be true, I at least want it to be true. This picture, this hope of a new heavens and a new earth. And let me end with this last little quote. Randy sent it to me this week. It's the, uh, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia series, which um, I haven't read it, forgive me. But here's apparently the end. It says this, All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the hope that is held out for us in the new heavens and the new earth only because of the grace and the kindness of King Jesus to come and to bear the curse for us. Father, some of us uh, don't believe this, and yet I pray, Father, would you work in their hearts so that they would at least want to believe it, because it is glorious, and it is unspeakable, and it, sh- it changes us, and it gives us hope for the world to come, and it gives us a motivation to want to bring the kingdom to this world, even as we go about our studies, even about it, as we go about the life that you have called us to. Thank you. Thank you for this semester, for, you, for the way that you have... Uh, showed us that the storyline of the Bible is really about you and it's not about us. And I pray that that would give us uh, encouragement to love you more and to find uh, your son, the Lord Jesus, that much more attractive, that much more beautiful, and that much more uh, worthy of all of our life and all of our praise and all of our affections. And it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.